to be able to be supportive to those who are around us. So if they're feeling anxious or uncomfortable, then we can't just say to them, forget it, it's not important. Polyvagal theory says our goal, our responsibility is to support those around us so that they feel safer. You're listening to Dr. Stephen Porges on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We are all feeling stress and anxiety right now with the COVID-19 virus um, resulting in school closures and work closures and just a lot of uncertainty about what will happen. And we're so fortunate to have on the show an expert on the physiology of our nervous system how stress and trauma impacts our bodies and the role of social connection in helping us feel safe. Debbie, it's so good to see you and hear your voice. We've been checking in quite a bit and I'm wondering, how are you holding up during all this? I'm holding up. It's stressful. I definitely feel anxious and I feel a lot of that uncertainty and and just worried about what will happen. I think I'm I'm on edge where even little decisions I have to make feel like a really big deal and every little thing that happens. I just, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm feeling the, the stress that a lot of folks are feeling right now. How about you? I can relate to being on the edge. We had to go downtown today to pick up some tile for a bathroom that we had to fix. And my, we're in the tile store, I have my hand sanitizer and I look over and see my youngest child with his mouth on the counter and I almost lost it. And that's sort of the kind of level I think that all of us are at right now that not only are our threat systems maximized, which is what uh, Dr. Porges is going to talk about, but we're kind of snappy towards each other and we're also creating threat in each other when, we, when we're that way. That's right. And I, another thing that I think a lot of us are experiencing right now is, is just a little feeling of loss and grief, potentially people that we're worried about potentially losing who are at risk, but also mm-hmm. around things getting canceled. You know, that vacation you've been planning for a long time and you decide not to go or the sports or music performance you've been preparing for and it's canceled. It's just, it's very hard, I think, to give some of these things up right now. A lot of emotions that we're processing. Mm-hmm. And then the uncertainty of it all. Our mind wants to have a sense of when is the end date so then I, then I can start my life again. And, and no one can really tell us that. And I think that's just like the breeding grounds for anxiety. I noticed I actually felt better once my school, my kid's school was actually closed because yeah. then I said, okay, three weeks, we're going to figure this out. But I think just the not knowing was yeah. just driving my mind a little bonkers. So yeah. sometimes that uncertainty is actually the hardest part. What Dr. Porges talks about today as well is the role of social distancing in all of this, because as mammals, our nervous system is really regulated by human connection. In his polyvagal theory, a lot of it's based on this vagus nerve, which is this 10th cranial nerve. It's the longest nerve in our body. It's fascinating. It goes from our head, moves through our heart, all the way down to our gut. And it's responsible for 
regulating our autonomic nervous system, helping us feel safety. And what happens is we have this lower part that connects to our gut. And that's the reason why maybe when we're stressed, we get stomach upset or people that have gastrointestinal stress associated with anxiety. But the upper part moves through our heart and even into our face. And that part, he calls it the heart-face connection. The heart-face connection of the vagus nerve is all about helping us connect to each other emotionally, being able to cue cue into each other's eye movements, facial movements, and even the sound of our voice. So right now, when we're engaging in the social distancing or even looking at somebody in the store and like, ooh, are you a risk to me? It is, it's, it's very threatening to us as a human species because we're mammals and we want to we want to gather together and be and feel safe in groups. And we can't do that right now. Oh, I'm so experiencing that. I just think I'm hypervigilant on the lookout for any breach of, you know, germ transmission rules. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, you feel it physiologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we came up with a few tips that we're trying to use ourselves that we thought might be helpful for our listeners. And to start with, it's important, I think, for people to be aware that a lot of therapists right now are offering online telemedicine session. So you can find a therapist you can talk to from your house if you're really experiencing a very high level of anxiety and think it would be helpful to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the other tip that Debbie and I maybe haven't been following so much, and this is coming from not following it and (laughs) deciding that we need to, (laughs) is that we need to limit our cable news and and, uh, social media. And what, what happens is we just multiple times per day, if if you are going through and scrolling through that newsfeed and clicking on the COVID-19 bait, it's activating your threat system. Find a couple sources that you trust and check them a couple times a day, as opposed to all day long. It's also important to think about this isn't a fire that's coming at you really quickly that you need to have that news all the time. It's moving, you know, it's moving within a day's time. So you'll get enough information by slowing down your check rate. And it will also help your, your, um, probably your stress and anxiety levels. That's right. It's it's a fine line between staying informed and staying so overly informed that it, you're down a rabbit hole. And so you want to find some moderation. And also, I think technology can be quite useful here if you use it to stay connected with people. You know, if you're at home quite a bit by yourself working from home right now, it's a good time to, you know, FaceTime with grandma or whatever the case may be to use technology to stay connected in a way that's safe. Absolutely. Connect with nature. We go way back to an episode that Debbie and I did, and I think it was like episode 29, all about the benefits of nature. This is a great time if you're able to get out of the house, go out and find some open space and connect with this bigger thing of planet Earth. It really helps uh, to feel a little bit more spaciousness, but also sort of let yourself regulate with the rhythms of the Earth. At the same time, if you can't get out or um, you choose not to, you can also bring nature in. Fun experiments to do with kids is is if you've loaded up on beans, like most of us, (laughs) there's no beans anywhere. If you've got dry beans, you can try sprouting them. And that's sort of a fun process to do with kids to grow little bean sprouts and turn them into plants. And that's bringing nature inside. Think about ways you can connect with growth. I went on a walk this morning with my family and it was so nice to get out and get some fresh air and see other people walking around and people weren't really in contact physically with each other, but it was just nice to be out and see people and breathe fresh air. 
Yeah. yeah. And move your body. We have a treat for you coming up next week with Kelly McGonigal. So take a little break from the COVID-19 uh, podcast and turn to Kelly McGonigal on her book, The Joy of Movement, which is so fantastic. It talks about the power of movement on mental health. And it may be difficult for you to get your normal exercise routine or movement routine right now in. Maybe you're not going to your class, but it's an opportunity to try a new program. So try out some high intensity interval training with a seven minute workout or go to an online yoga class or even just play inside with your kids, play some hide and seek. And don't forget to move. It's really important in terms of your mental wellness. Yes. It's also a good time to just reconnect with your values. I, to me, it's been such a perspective shift. I've been stressing out about a number of things the last few months, and all of a sudden, they seem less important. And I think this is a time when we can to turn toward what's most important to us. In fact, I think you can use your anxiety, if you're feeling it, to point out what's really important to you right now, that that motto from Steve Hayes, we hurt where we care. I think just this is a time to reflect on that and to really notice what matters. Yeah. It also really reminds me of a couple of years ago when we had um, the fires and the debris flow in Santa Barbara and basically the town shut down. We had to cancel everything. All the holiday things got canceled and we drove away in our car with our little box of goods from our house, not knowing what we were going to return to. And I just remember this feeling of all that really mattered was in this, this small space together. It was uh, a really important time for our family and a really uh, grounding time just to not do all the, all the doing that we've been caught up in. And that's maybe an opportunity for us to reevaluate re a little bit how we want to return when we slowly do return. Maybe there's some things you want to change up. Another thing that was really powerful during that time is when we, when we did uh, drive out of town, we started seeing all these signs about the first responders and the firefighters and all the people that were staying and working so hard for us to save our home. And that really connected to a value of mine of um, just sort of helping each other out. And I am thinking about all the people right now that are working so hard to help us out to stay safe and protect us. Yeah, I think near and dear to my heart are healthcare providers. I work with a lot of healthcare providers and they are feeling a lot of stress. They're on the front lines getting ready to help people, you know, showing up at work at hospitals and clinics. And, you know, they're going to have a lot of highly stressful situations and hard decisions ahead. So shout out to all of you who are working so hard. Yeah. So we a heartfelt appreciation. Thank you. And so the next tip is do some things that you've been meaning to do. So you're home, you got some time, like maybe some online learning. And this is our plug for Praxis because it's a great time for you if you're a therapist to, to do all the stuff that you've been meaning to do and, and read the books you've been meaning to read. Great time to learn ACT. Praxis has online learning for ACT. It has online learning for the DNA model with Louise Hayes, who we had on the episode a while back and using ACT with teens. Uh, you can also learn more about MBSR for teens with a learning that's coming up soon. And you can access all of it from their website at praxiscet.net. You can also get it through our website. We can connect you there. And if you're interested in a boot camp in the future, there's a discount code through our website if you want to sign up for that. So if you're a therapist, you want to deepen your study in the most cutting edge approaches to mental health, check out Praxis and it's a great time to do it. Great. Another tip 
practice what Diana termed pro-social distancing. So we're all doing this for a reason. And what you can do is connect to the bigger value behind why we're doing social distancing. There really is a pro-social reason we're doing this, which is focusing on helping others and connecting to a bigger whole. You know, we're we're coming together as humanity here. And, and you can also find smaller ways to be of pro-social service. So you can find a neighbor that might need some groceries delivered. You can call a friend who you haven't talked to in a while. And doing this social connection has the benefit, as you'll learn today, of, con- of activating your vagus nerve and through connection. Absolutely. And another way to activate your vagus nerve is through breathing. Dr. Porges will talk to you about this on the show that pranayama, a sort of deep breathing from yoga and deep um, breathing practices from yoga can be really helpful in calming your nervous system down. And I'm going to record a pranayama for all of you to listen to. We'll, we'll, We'll put it as a separate episode right after this one, if you want to listen to it and share that with your friends instead of maybe sharing some of the Uh, scary stories. Well, one thing we can all do right now is come together. The world, I think, has felt so divided lately. And this is all just a big reminder that we all are all connected and we have to work together and act like all of humanity is in together on this and we're all a team. Yes. And look each other in the eye when we get a chance to spread um, connection and support. And it's good to see you, Debbie. Good to see you too. Good luck, everybody. Today, we have the honor of talking with Dr. Stephen Porges. He's a a professor of psychiatry and researcher whose work offers a paradigm shift in our understanding of human physiology, human connection, and feeling safe. Dr. Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he directs the Trauma Research Center at the Kinsley Institute. He is professor of psychiatry at the University of Northern North Carolina, professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he directed the Brain Body Center in the Department of Psychiatry, and professor emeritus at the University of Maryland, where he chaired the Department of Human Development and directed the Institute for Child Study. In 1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. Welcome, Dr. Porges. Well, thank you very much, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here and to kind of share my views and to see where we'll go today on the interview. Yes. And as we were just chatting before we started. We're at the the time of the coronavirus, and I'm sure that will enter into some of our discussion. But what you mentioned is that the polyvagal theory is more about, is all about being human. So sort of everything is welcome there in, in talking about the polyvagal theory and it really can apply to a lot of different areas of our, our life and our discussion. Absolutely. And the core uh uh, value or view within polyvagal theory is the quest for safety. And then it starts all making sense because as mammals, that's our, our primary quest is to be safe. And if the cues around us aren't safe, our body reacts to that. And we'll mm-hmm. get into that. Mm-hmm. Help us maybe understand what, what is happening for us humans when we don't feel safe in terms of um, our physiology and our autonomic nervous system. Our uh, we need to think not in terms of an autonomic nervous system and a central nervous system, but as an integrated nervous system, that when our brain starts processing cues of danger, 
it shifts our physiological state. So our body moves from being an accessible and welcoming and socially connected organism that feels comfortable in the arms of others to a vulnerable nervous system that recruits different neural structures to mobilize, to fight or flee. And if in certain situations we can't escape or we can't uh, fight appropriately so that we're safe, our body has a literally a secret back door. It shuts down. It, mm-hmm. So there's all these kind of sophisticated adaptive features wired into our nervous system. But the issue is when some of these are triggered, it's difficult to get out of them or to re- renormalize or to become stable again. The body may try to take us out of being in contact with the world. So in a way, we become numb to our body and we become disembodied. And these are now kind of cliche words that are part of our vocabulary within psychology. But they're part of our adaptive strategies to stay alive and to survive the most difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So in your theory, you talk about sort of these three systems. There's mm-hmm. the, the shutdown numbing system that, mm-hmm. as if you're a therapist, it sounds really familiar in terms of yeah. we're talking about people that are dissociating or yeah. um, really disconnected from, from their body. And then there's the the, the flee or the mm. fight response. Yeah. And then this third response of, of um, sort of social connection as being mm. another route. And what I get curious about is mm. when we're experiencing threat on this more global, global way, how that is also impacting oh. our ability to use social connection and what's ha- what's sort of how it's going awry a little bit. Like our, 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 our co-regulation is, isn't working so well. Um, right well, now, yeah, we have to uh, we have to put it in. Let's go intellectual for a moment, then we'll go okay. emotional. But intellectually, yeah. we see uh, the mammalian nervous system and the human nervous system. We're mammals, as having tremendous flexibility in all kinds of settings and contexts. So when we're not getting cues of safety, our body gets into states of defense. Yeah. Not, we live in a world where. Uh, human beings are given tremendous responsibility for their feelings and their thoughts when it may not be, uh, maybe they don't have that much control. Maybe a lot of our behavior, our thoughts, our feelings, especially our feelings are more on a reflexive level. Mm -hmm. So maybe our feelings of safety are really reflexive just as well as our feelings of danger are reflexive. So, if that's the case, then therapies need to be have a different insight or a different portal into regulating those underlying states that would promote feelings of safety. So let me kind of unpack this again. So I came up with this term called neuroception, and it's really our nervous system's identification or evaluation of risk in the environment from safety to danger to potential life threat. It's not a conscious awareness. It's our body's reaction. Our body reacts and then being, as I say, having big brains and being creative individuals, we develop narratives. Now, these are these are called personal stories, but they're narratives. And we try to functionally justify our feelings. Mm-hmm. So if we are, have feelings that are not feelings of safety, and I'm looking at you and you're in my room, I'm really mad at you. You created it. And this is the danger of what's going on now with with the COVID-19, that we're being impacted on so much fear-related information that we're going to misread the cues of those who are close to us. 
those that are coming towards us to be supportive of us, we'll misread them as intruding and we'll get reactive to them and they'll get reactive to us. And there's a second part of this as we are dealing with infectious disease, which the model is separation in space is the way that we're going to treat it. What are we really saying? We're creating another disease. I'm not going to go into the parity of disease because we have to be physically healthy before we can even be mentally engaging. So I'm not saying this separation is bad. I'm saying there's a consequence and we need to be aware of it. And the consequence is that we're not getting enough uh, social interaction face-to-face where we read the cues of others. Now, Zoom and Skype might be okay, but they're certainly not the same as being sitting across from someone and you listening to their voice and you see their head changing, uh, posture to facial expressions changing, and you place your hand out and say, would you like, or you just touch them and they now feel the back in contact. Um, or you may see friends and you say, would you like a hug? And they'll say, oh, now I really, I need one. And, and that, uh, those opportunities aren't going to be there for a while because we are now being confronted with actually something that is very dangerous. And we need to evaluate the danger for what it is. It is a life threat, but our bodies can't react like a life threat because we'll just immobilize. We'll give up. We'll become hopeless. And that's not good for anyone. It's certainly not good for the species, but it's not good for us personally. So there's this trade-off between uh, the ability to separate, to contain infectious disease and the minimization of the necessity of social interaction. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about this social engagement system and how it relates to your theory? In, in particular, I think it'd be helpful for people to understand the vagus nerve and what you're alluding to in terms of the importance of facial expression, hearing voices. So we were given in our evolutionary history, we were given this wonderful new vagal circuit and that vagal circuit calms down. It turns off the sympathetic uh, and adrenal reactions. It makes us feel safe. And that vagal circuit is regulated in a part of the brainstem that also regulates the muscles of the face and head. So our autonomic regulation moved to our facial expression, our ability to listen, and the intonation of our voice. So that became a social engagement system. But if we go back to the history of it, evolutionary history, it was how the mammals communicate their physiological state to other mammals, to, doc- to in a sense, communicate to them that they were safe to come close to. So mammals to survive had to co-regulate, had to connect, and had to cooperate. And that was all being done through cueing and often through vocalizations long before there was ever any language. But as therapists know, the intonation of their client's voice tells them an awful lot. And the way they speak to their clients have major impact on their clients. So our nervous system has a portal to, to pick up cues of safety through intonation of voice. And we see this with a mother with her baby. The, and we also see, I often say, mothers do great with babies, fathers do better with dogs or their pets. And it's because the father will use a 
pet-oriented mother ease type voice with the dog, but with the child. So, and the dog, it, you know, we talk to our dogs like we would talk to an infant. Yeah. That's because the melodic voice for all mammals, or I'd say most mammals, uh, within the frequency band that they use for social communication, that modulation in there is a cue to the nervous system to be safe, that they're safe. Now, when we bring this back to COVID-19, we're, we're going, because we can turn the news on and we're not hearing voices that make us feel safe. Right. Or we're not hearing voices at all. Yeah. I think for, for many people, they're not turning on the news. They're just scrolling through their phone. And what what happens is that we put the tone on ourselves. Many times when I'm in, in session, I'll have clients bring in their texts like on their phone and they'll read a text. Like my sister said this. Uh-huh. And when they read the text, mm. they'll read it with a tone of voice, like that their sister is really mad at them. Yeah. And I'll, I'm like, where'd that tone of voice come from? <laughs> because there was no tone of voice, but we create an interpretation of a tone of voice yeah. when it's not there. And I think that's also part of this very interesting um, mm. world that we live in is that we're, well, there's a tremendous amount of information that's being shared mm. without tone of voice and without facial expression. And it leaves the human mind a lot of room to mm. make interpretations or um, create stories. Yeah. But there's, there's also uh, the politics of the country are not warm and connected and accessible. And so when you look at politicians who have responsibilities for our safety and health, and they're angry. They're not conveying to us that we're going to be taken care of. Right. And, you know, there's two sides of the argument and saying, um, is it really possible to be taken care of? So are they really telling us the uncertainty and that's important for us to know? Or if they could talk to us in a more connected way, would we be able to cooperate in a way that might help solve problems? Yeah. And, so I'm, I'm much, of course, uh, a fan of the latter, but mm-hmm. we can watch uh, the people who, who are actually pronouncing what's going on. And you can look at their faces in terms of, uh, so if the muscles of the lower face are driving everything and the muscles of the upper face are blank or turned off, you're dealing with someone who is in a very stressed or fight flight state. But if the upper part of the face becomes softer, has an exuberance, and the voice starts having a melodic tone to it, you feel very comfortable. You can literally deal with whatever they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where this concept of of Mm co-regulation is is so important and and, and often gets kind of missed in in, in conversations. Well, it gets missed because we place a premium on self-regulation. And even with in terms of development of children, we argue that it's good for them. They need to self-regulate and they shouldn't be a mommy's boy or whatever we want to talk about. But in reality, the more effective we are in co-regulating in our world, the more effective we are in self-regulating. So co-regulation provides us with the physiological resource to be bold, exploratory, and self-regulatory. So what would you, how, how could we co-regulate each other right now? Like what would be a way for people to, you know, besides wash their hands <laughs> <laughs> and stay six feet apart, co-regulate around, around this? Well, okay. So let's go back in time a little bit and let's talk about uh, 
what we need. So we used to say, you know, I, when you talk to people on the phone, hearing their voices, you could say to someone, oh, what's wrong? Because you could tell from their voice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, so we stripped the voice from the face, but the voice was very powerful. And this is yeah. due to our evolutionary history of the intonation of voice as being a major portal for co-regulation. But somewhere around, I guess it would have been uh, the 1980s, we stripped the word from the voice and we called it email. And then it became instant messaging. And then it became just texting. And in the beginning, the email was misinterpreted by a lot of people, just like you're talking about your client and the text. Mm -hmm. People used to say, why are you angry at me? And what really was was merely a terse statement. So we learned, we collectively learned to use uh, salutations at the ends of our terse message like best or uh, warmly or hugs or put a heart down how people are doing that. But it's really to make people realize that you're not angry at them. Because without an intonation in the voice, you're clueless about the true meaning of the message. And so you're asking, how can we help? We can talk on the phone. We can Skype. These are better than total isolation. And, you know, we can co-regulate in that way. But we have become, let's say, a culture that is quite tightly wrapped. We're an anxious culture. We mobilize a lot. And we're being bombarded with lots of cues of danger and fear and life threat. And our nervous system doesn't like that. Our nervous system wants, wants to know that there is some space in which we are safe and where we can feel comfortable in the arms of another. And this now becomes the paradoxical situation uh, when we're very concerned about contamination. Are we ever going to be safe in the short term? of giving someone a warm hug or embrace. How are our relationships? Uh, if we go out of the house, because we're all afraid now that contamination can occur on clothing and other things, are we willing to uh, hug those that are closest to us? Yeah. And one just hopes that this moves through relatively quickly and it gets contained. But... It becomes, you know, uh, diseases are not, well, we have to be prepared and we have to be prepared for what this uh, chronic disengagement is do, will be doing to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that there's an opportunity, I think, maybe also for some, some paradigm shifts to look at ways in which we've already been disengaged. And... Yeah how we could re-engage in, mm -hmm. in, you know, in smaller groups or smaller communities or with the people that, you know, I've been in much more contact with my parents and saying, mm -hmm. Hey, can I pick you up some groceries? I don't want you to go. I was just yeah. at Trader Joe's. You're going to Costco. Yeah. I don't want you to go to Trader Joe's. I'll go there and I'll get you some stuff. And, and actually that's co-regulating too, because yeah. I think the action of helping or activating the compassion system mm -hmm. is, is very much part of this as well as when we can see ourselves as helping others or doing mm -hmm. this in the service of a greater whole, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a shift from the sort of egocentric. I'm doing this so that I don't get sick yeah. rather let's all work together to, to have this pass, you know, in yeah. a way that our healthcare system can, 
handle it. And yeah. The, the interesting part, and this is my bias perspective, is when we feel safe, we are a engaging, compassionate, connected species. This is who yeah. we really are. It's only with wrappers of defense, which are really uh, almost forced on us by news, by religions, by politicians, that we lose the core of who we are. Yeah. The, the other so it's going, finding that core if it's in a place when we feel threat, like how you how you can step into that. Yeah, or I would even say allowing that core to emerge rather than even finding it. Mm-hmm. So it's like if we're not defensive, who are we? And it's the issue of accessibility. And we're, you know, there are decades, I would say even transgenerational transitions in which accessibility is really people are told to be very cautious about accessibility to others. And particularly if you have a trauma history well, as well. This is this is the, the dilemma, see, right? If you have a trauma history, accessibility doesn't feel safe. Okay, so let's just think for a moment. First of all, uh, we are traumatized species. Okay, let's just start there. But we're a resilient species that looks for safety and tries to create coalitions and cooperative relationships. Uh, we are also a transgenerational, transgenerational traumatized culture. And everyone's family has been affected by trauma. Uh, because we're an immigrant population, we're a population that has sent its young to war for, for decades, and there's a consequence to all that. And we have to be acknowledge that, that what we've done was good to, was useful for survival. But it also was paying a price about our ability to feel safe with others. And we need to understand that. Now, I started getting interested in, in trauma, not because I was interested in trauma, but that my ideas start to provide a useful set of metaphors and understanding, understandings for people who had been traumatized. And what I've started to learn is that we can learn so much about what it is to be a human by studying trauma because we start seeing what's taken away. We see the ability to be safe in the arms of another. We see the ability to see the world in a positive perspective. We see the loss of purpose in life. And then we see even the comorbidities of our health, that when we're stuck in a state of either shutting down, dissociating, or fight flight, we see all the comorbidities, all the gut problems, all these uh, disorders that are currently called medically unexplained symptoms, like fibromyalgia, migraine, dysautonomia, and irritable bowel syndrome, that these are not really diseases that have specific organ dysfunction. These are diseases of the nervous system being in a state of defense and not supporting the function of the organs. So we start seeing this cluster coming together. Everything is really the story of evolution or the story of mammalian and especially human evolution. And the story is that when the earliest vertebrates came, they were relatively simple organisms. And when they were under threat, which was not enough food, not enough oxygen, uh, their bodies would just go into a conservation mode and basically shut down. 
The most primitive vertebrates had very tiny brains, so they didn't need much oxygen going to the brains. Yes, but this is that what that little catch, catch lizards and they like can hold them on their backs and are like passed out. You can put a, a reptile under a state of life threat, can hold its breath for several hours. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that's not doing, it's not danger, but it's appearing not to be alive. And you'll also see something linked to that. They often will defecate before they immobilize mm-hmm. because having food in your digestive tract is metabolically costly. So the priority is get rid of it and just hang on. Our nervous system is so smart. The reason I brought up the defecation is that with, within humans, when humans are under states of life threat, they may defecate or urinate. Mm-hmm. And it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something that says that this is a very smart nervous system trying to make this adaptive decision. But so we still have that nervous system we, in place, we that, have that old it. one, the reptile yeah, one. Yeah, right. And that old nervous system is co-opted. It does great things because it helps regulate primarily the organs below our diaphragm. So it does its good stuff. But it should not be recruited in defense. So the issue of our autonomic nervous system is it does wonderful things, but don't recruit it in states of defense. So the issue of our autonomic nervous system is it does wonderful things, but don't recruit it in states of defense, or you'll be really messed up, especially if it's prolonged. So the earliest one is this old unmyelinated vagus that we still have and it is primarily regulating organs below the diaphragm there are some fibers that still go to the heart and they can still be in a sense recruited we have uh through the evolutionary tree or the progression we have a sympathetic nervous system and this enabled the vertebrates to mobilize and when it mobilized, and this is part of polyvagal theory, it's hierarchical. So that when you mobilize, what do you inhibit? You inhibit your digestion. And in a sense, I always like to say your mother knew that when you wanted to go out to swim. And mm-hmm. she was, after having lunch, you can't go out and swim. Why? Because you'll get cramps and die. No, what she was really saying is that you can't go out and swim because of the polyvagal theory, moving or mobilizing will inhibit digestion and with lots of food in there it's just going to give a bad reaction and you're going to get cramps so there's wisdom in some of these folk myths so the polyvagal theory said the second stage was mobilization now in the world of therapy this becomes really interesting because uh, as we become more and more trauma informed we realize that those who have experienced the most uh let's say the worst traumas, they have immobilized and they have immobilized with numbness and shutting down loss of feeling their body, a disembodiment. And those people don't ever want to go back to immobilization. So the notion of giving them a hug, their body will pull back. And they're the ones who often will do high risk behaviors and addictive other addictive behaviors like drugs so their body doesn't calm down because calming down to them is vulnerability so where stillness is for many people who are more typically regulated stillness is that moment where anxiety disappears time expands and you have your moment of creativity and spirituality if you carry a severe trauma history stillness is really the worst place you don't want to be there Mm-hmm. Now, you have, so what we have seen is that we have two defense systems that are hierarchically organized. And if we have used this shutting down one, our body says, don't go back there, use 
mobilization. We can see this in many uh, clients. They will be tightly wrapped, you know, muscular. They'll talk very rapidly. They'll be very tense. Uh, and time is everything. They have to keep moving. Time will not slow up for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as you, as you to talk about one way of helping us sort of get our nervous system more into the social engagement mm-hmm. uh, realm is, is through co-regulation. But there's other ways too that people are talking a lot about based on your theory in terms of how to stimulate the, the vagal response mm-hmm. and, the, and the vagus nerve. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to those, because that's actually how I found my way to you. Oh. I, I was, um, I did a lot of chanting in oh. my, um, early on in, as a uh, yoga teacher mm. in my yoga practice. And I always found that incredibly mm. healing for me. And then I was working in the eating disorder treatment center and there was a, a physician there that said, well, you know that chanting activates, that, yeah. singing like that activates your vagus nerve. And then he also said, and so does throwing up. <laughs> well, it's a different <laughs> vagus. You see, this is, see if you, if he were polyvagal informed, yeah. Even though the difference, because throwing yeah. up is the old uh, unmyelinated vagus pathway that we uh, share with all vertebrates, and yeah. throwing up is part of that life threat defensive system. Yeah. And yeah. it's all hierarchical. So yeah. cues of safety coming through the new myelinated vagus turn off the gut's defensive nausea. So uh, we, the, the issue is there are certain portals that we have due to our own evolutionary history. And one is through breath, which is why yoga becomes a real interesting uh, of uh, way of treating autonomic state issues. Because when we inhale, we turn off that uh, social engagement vagal circuit, that positive one that calms us down. And of course, when we inhale, if we hyperventilate, we become highly mobilized. But when we exhale or exhale slowly, those vagal efferent or vagal effects on our heart calm us down. Mm-hmm. And so part of chanting is the, uh, it's, ex- it's expiration. So is singing. But with chanting, you're also stimulating the nerves and muscles in the face. And those vibratory, uh, st- vibratory stimulation is also affecting a whole family of nerves that in the brainstem, are linked to that vagal regulation of our heart. So when we smile and when we talk with a prosodic voice, or even when we listen to someone with a prosodic voice, our face softens, we become more exuberant, more positive, and we're calmer. Yeah. You mentioned Peter and the Wolf in one of your writings. I don't remember where it was. And that was my favorite story Mm. to play when I had young kids Uh in the car, because I think it regulated me. Mm-hmm. The sound of uh, the prosody of the music yeah. and the sound of the voice, and uh, and I and I would do a lot of singing in the car when kids were screaming and they're cr- like little babies are crying, and mm-hmm. it, it because it sometimes it worked with the kids, sometimes it didn't, but it was to help regulate me. And so yeah. it's very interesting to see the science behind. Mm-hmm. There is such science behind all these ancient wisdoms that you know well, moms have known forever. Well, lies, you know. But I start, to, you know, I, I feel and I believe is that there's always been smart people, and in certain ancient rituals, they embedded uh, a deep understanding of the neuroregulation of our body. It just didn't have our language. So when you go into yoga, and especially pranayama yoga, you're dealing with yoga of the social engagement system, the muscles of the face. The other part I wanted to bring up was uh, had to deal with 
the whole circuit of ingestion, suck, swallow, and breathing. And this is really the same neural circuit of the social engagement system. So we often ingest food to calm ourselves down, yeah. not to digest. But as babies learned, ingesting food is very efficient in calming you down when you're young. But as you get older, I mean, like a year old, social behavior becomes more potent. So it's food won't calm you. You need the mother's engagement to calm you, the attention. So it's telling us a lot about what our nervous system needs. So in our dialogue, what we're really saying, our nervous system needs this social interaction. It needs it through vocalizations. It needs it through gestures and proximity. We need to be with others. And we also know that if people who have trauma histories, they would like to be with others, but put them in proximity of others. What happens? They their body says, uh-uh, don't want to go there again. And when they start to create relationships, what happens? The relationships fail and they, they run away because they don't, their body says being safe is a great vulnerability. Violation of trust is where you get hurt. And it's not a cognitive decision. The cognitive decision is I want to have relationships. I want to be happy with someone. The biological evaluation is that this is dangerous. And so we need to develop therapeutic models that talk to the, the nervous system and don't merely just talk to our higher brain structures because as we talk to them, they don't have all the toolkits to regulate that. That's why yoga and breath and res respiration practices and singing and dance movement become all the strategies that the smart brain can implement to talk to the body. Yes. One of my very good friends, um, Gwendolyn, has developed these song circles in mm. our community. Mm. And a lot of people aren't going to church, churches in the, in the same way that they used to in, 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 in singing in circle. And she talks about how sing, singing in circle with others is so incredibly um Connecting, soothing and connecting in, in a way that is different than just even just having dinner with people. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's profound. Well, think, yeah. think about drum circles. Drum circles do the same thing. Yeah. And they're, they're quite a unique experience because you don't know the people around the circle with the drums. But when you finish, you think they're your best friends. And so you have this kind of moment of, I, I use the term, shared intimacy. But it's all about social engagement. You're looking at people. You're coordinating your behavior to be part of that group. Can we talk a little bit about heart rate variability sure. and how this relates to all of it? Because I I feel like I'm, I'm trying to figure this all out. I, I got into the heart rate variability bandwagon and got one of those aura rings yeah. that measures your heart rate variability at night. And what actually made me a believer was I was on a retreat, a yoga retreat in Costa Rica and my heart rate variability, according to this ring tripled mm. during that week. Mm. And then I came back and it went back to where it was. So something was happening and it was measuring something, but can you talk about what is heart rate variability yeah. and how does it relate okay. to this whole so nervous system? We're going to move from something that is very descriptive heart rate variability. Yeah. to is that underlying neural mechanisms that represent homeostatic function. So okay. you got to go on this little journey because heart rate variability is merely the variability 
of the time between your heartbeats. It's mm-hmm. basically saying your heart's not beating at a constant rate. In fact, your sin- your sinal atrial node may beat at a constant rate, but as the vagus comes down from your brainstem to that pacemaker, it's slowing it up. And that's mm-hmm. so when you exhale slowly, it slows your heart rate up. When you inhale, heart rate goes back up because the vagal effect is being reduced. So heart rate variability is merely the fact that your beat beat to beat changes are not constant. And that could be good or could not be that good. Okay. Okay. Because it's so merely, more is not better. Not yeah, necessarily. necessarily. Okay. Because it's descriptive, because you could have arrhythmias, which mean would be misbeats. Are, or beats of that are actually fragmented beats, and your beat to beat variability would be very high, but you wouldn't be very healthy. Let's say you had AFibs or atrial right. fibrillations, and they start popping in, or preventricular contractions, they would contribute to the variability, but it wouldn't be the variability you want. So now we move into what variability do you want? Now, the interesting part is that the respiratory influence on heart rate produces a variability known as respiratory sinus arrhythmia. That can be quantified, and that is an excellent index of the vagal influence on the heart, the vagal tone coming through the new myelinated vagus, the part of your social engagement system. That is what you want. Yeah. More of because that is you want more of it. Yes. That is People your, think heart rate and they think they want low, but with that type of variability, right. it's an indicator of vagal tone. Of that type of vagal tone. And that yeah. is really uh, the vagal tone that gives you resilience. And I'll explain a little bit why. Functionally, it's saying that you have more of a break on your heart rate. So you have a, it's a lower base level heart rate. But it means that if you have to get up and go up a flight of steps, you just take the break off. And you don't need to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. Because when the sympathetic nervous system gets stimulated, your ability to regulate it isn't as tightly controlled as through the vagus. So it's like people who you may have as clients, uh, they may be apparently calm, and then they get triggered and they go into rage, which meant that their vagal inhibition was extraordinarily weak, and they couldn't, in a sense, regulate that. And so when their system got mobilized, there was nothing to keep it contained. So the bottom line of what you're saying is, yeah, heart rate variability is important, but you need to know what are, what component of heart rate variability mm-hmm. is changing. Mm-hmm. And when we're working with things like biofeedback yeah. or breathing, mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to work on is this heart rate variability. Right. In fact, a lot of biofeedback is actually respiratory sinus arrhythmia or what they call heart rate variability biofeedback. It's always, or say always, it's usually related to increasing the amount of heart rate variance associated with breathing. Mm-hmm. And it's related to the part of the vagal nerve that the myelinated part right. that can put the brake on things. And, right. And it's yeah, the part that's nervous. linked to the neuroregulation of the face and head. So when your uh, vagal tone gets greater, you become more prosodic, you become more welcoming, uh, more resilient. Helpful. You were one of the, the, the early researchers in this area. Oh, so I, I, yeah. I hate to tell you how early. Yeah, but it was in the, in the <laughs> 1960s, yes. And when I, quote, discovered these phenomena, I, w- I got a lot of pushback from my colleagues because they, one who had been a relatively famous scientist said to me that the reason you have heart rate variability in your data is that you're a crappy scientist. <laughs> 
that I mean, the words weren't quite like that, but basically was it was the assumption that the heart was always being at a constant level and only changed as a function of context or stimuli. It was this very strict stimulus response model. When I started my work, I was bringing into the dialogue something that I called the stimulus organismic state response. And that that organismic state was the intervening variable that determined whether a stimulus produced one type of response or another. And that organismic variable was always heart rate variability or vagal regulation of the heart. So, and now with polyvagal theory, it becomes the whole state of the autonomic nervous system really is your window into that intervening variable. And where do you see polyvagal theory influencing, uh, whether it's the education system, whether it's, I mean, you talked a bit about therapy, but it seems that there's a lot of domains that are now using polyvagal theory. Um, well, it, it, yeah. for this way, at this stage of my life or career, whatever you want to call it, it's really interesting because uh, polyvagal theory is a theory of enabling others to develop their creative ideas. And they're in areas like education now, talking about polyvagal informed schools. They're into uh, creating addiction treatment models. Um, people are interested in the judicial system and polyvagal theory because uh, people are brought in front of the court and their physiology is just falling apart. They can't represent themselves well. Um, so you start seeing that it becomes a way of understanding how to uh, retune a nervous system to make it more uh, adaptable in different settings, more resilient, uh, or what I like to say in education, uh, create the conditions in which that child will be able to learn efficiently and effectively. And the other one is even surgery, that if our body is in a state of defense, how do we respond to the surgical arena? We're in a state of panic. And so even if they provide drugs, our body knows that this was not where we should be. But if we're welcoming, even to surgery, uh, the trajectory of healing becomes easier. Mm -hmm. So we And now in the, in the arena of contagious disease, uh, polyvagal well, so, theory can so, show up and give us some ideas. Yeah, but, but here's the double-edged that. So since polyvagal theory also is related to immune function, yeah. Okay, so it, so this notion of toxic stress and impact on our immune function, polyvagal theory, says the body is smart. We need to, in a sense, allow our body to do its healing or support our homeostatic functions. However, um, we can't just go through the world with wishful thinking is what I'm saying, right. that there's going to be certain toxicities in different environments that we have to be aware of. So uh, I, I walk around saying... Uh, stay calm, <laughs> but when someone is not calm, telling them to be calm is the worst thing. Right. So, so, so basically, that's why we're going to Costco in a few minutes. <laughs> My view is, I'll sit on the porch and have a cup of coffee, but no, we're going to go to Costco, and that's okay. But we yeah. learn to be able to be supportive to those who are around us. So, if they're feeling anxious or uncomfortable then we can't just say to them, forget it, it's not important. That That is, polyvagal theory says our goal, our responsibility is to support those around us so that they feel safer. Right. And that's what, you know, 
actually what made a big shift for me in terms of my nervous system around um, anxiety with all of this was when my my colleague and co-host, co-host Debbie, she just sent me this text yesterday. For whatever reason, it shifted me. She said, you know, anxiety is a, is a functional emotion that it's going to motivate people to to do the right thing. Well, and and, I, and when she said it that way, it just helped me sort of understand, yeah, we, we it's helpful to have a little bit of anxiety mm-hmm. if it motivates us to do the right thing, which is to help take care of others. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it shifted my whole perspective uh, towards more of a pro-social one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as yeah. you don't lose the pro-social part because anxiety right. is mo- so this is like the difference between playing and aggression. So if you play with people or team sports, you're mobilized. You use what are the same structures as fight flight, but you're also using social engagement to contain it. So, so you don't hurt someone. If you hurt someone while playing, what do you do? You look at that person and you say, are you okay? You support. And this is part of what we have to do when we get kind of mobilized, realizing that we are sending cues to others that may not be supportive. Mm-hmm. It, another concept that you've talked about is the difference between empathy versus oh, uh, compassion. That gets me into trouble because my my friends uh, use this to describe what they're doing, even though I would uh, reinterpret their, their their doing. So if you reach into the literature on empathy, the idea is that when you have circuits of empathy responding in the brain, they're mimicking the circuits of the real pain signals. So it becomes you're feeling the other person's pain. But when you work with trauma uh, survivors, one thing you learn very quickly is they don't want their story, their pain to hurt you. So empathy becomes the worst thing that a therapist can, can express when, in a sense, trying to allow or enable their clients to express their trauma histories. But compassion is the right thing. Compassion is that respect. Compassion is uh, the support, is the presence, it's the therapeutic presence of being there when a person can explain what's happened to them without an interpretation. And since the true opportunity to be compassionate is when you deal with people with trauma histories, because they want their voice to be heard. They don't want you to pick up a gun and kill the assailant. They want their feelings to be heard, and they want you to support them. It's a very similar thing with grief as well. And and one of the reasons why people don't share their grief is because they feel like if they share their grief, they're going to harm the other, yeah. the other person is too much. If I, if I keep on bringing this up. And so people end up not sharing yeah. because they're, because of that, I guess it'd be fear of empathy almost that you're going to feel what the I'm story, feeling. The story feel. will hurt someone yeah. and you don't want to yeah. hurt anyone. And right. grief, I, I was in a sense, uh, trying to get a deeper understanding what grief was from a neurobiological level. And it's as if there's, it's like trauma, it overlaps with trauma, but there's not a, uh, uh, a, a perpetrator, it's something different. So with trauma, there can be a target in building the narrative. With grief, it's just left within you. So the narrative for grieving is very difficult to use a narrative to get out of. And the culture says, come on, enough grieving, let's go to let's go out to have dinner. Let's go to a movie. Let's do something. But it doesn't work that way. But the culture as it's changing now, where there are people who are now 
more open about their grieving, especially with their pets, a loss of a pet. People feel now okay to talk about how bad they feel when they lost their, their dog or their cat. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where some of the, again, the old, old rituals around grief rituals mm-hmm. are actually mm-hmm. incredibly healing song and being together and crying oh, together. Oh, is, oh, that's oh, how we grieve. And in, yeah. Ingestion, yeah. eating. Yeah ingestion which is the social engagement system so if you can't talk you eat together and and just think about how we use uh concepts like having a drink or having a meal together we use it to to kind of uh become closer to others I'd love for you to share a little bit about some of your interventions that you're using and so we can connect if people yeah. want to learn more about uh, your theory and and uh, about you. Well, they could go to my webpage, which is stephenporges.com, uh, and that has links to uh, other places, but also has links to YouTubes and talks. But the interesting one, that part that I've really been working on, is really uh, an intervention that is uh, now called the Safe and Sound Protocol, or SSP. It's marketed by a company called Integrated Listening Systems, which is now part of Unite uh, Te- Unite Health, I guess they call that company. And there are now, I think, 3,500 therapists have been trained to deliver the intervention. Uh, the intervention started off as a five-hour listening to these auditory or computer-altered vocal music. I initially developed it for kids who were on spectrum because it stimulated the social engagement system. But the trauma community uh, had heard me talk for years, and they heard me talk about this intervention. They started trying it, and it's been through the insight of these trauma therapists that this whole technology has been now modified to deal with trauma. And what we're learning is that it needs to be done much slower because it's very powerful. So just think about listening to a song and our body reacting to it. And that reaction is is important for the client and also for the therapist. The cl- it, it basically enables the client to f- get the bodily feelings without attributing them to another person or context. The music is doing this. They're touching something. We're, we have now several uh, trauma-informed therapists who are using it. They come from different specialty areas. Uh, many are somatic-type therapists. Uh, uh, and what they're doing is, by being trauma-informed, they are good observers of their clients, and they titrate it. Now, it could be 10 minutes a day, every other day. You know, what they're doing is changing uh, the paradigm to fit the client to fit the client's fragile nervous system. And part of what I'm learning is that these cues of safety in the acoustic intervention is really an algorithm that amplifies the intonation of vocal music, meaning it amplifies prosody or making the nervous system puts into a state that it can't refuse the cues of say, you know, like you talk to your dog, pretty boy, it it can't say no, it just kind of opens up. But if you have a trauma history, that opening up, that accessibility is vulnerability. And that gives something for the therapist and client to work on. Because without that type of triggering, the client is saying, I want to have relationships, I want to be hugged. 
But this is really saying you may want to, but your body is still in control. And we need to now re-educate the nervous system to be more accessible. So it's a re-education program of the, of that system. To be done with a therapist? To be done with a therapist, okay. under okay. the guidance of a therapist. And if there's a trauma history, yes. Uh, yes. If there, if if the individual just has auditory hypersensitivities, no yeah. other symptomatology, uh, and a reasonably resilient nervous system, nah, they could probably just take it home and do it. I don't. Right. I don't. That's not my bias. My bias is to make sure that people are monitored because you never know. You don't know right. because so. People can learn more about the Safe and Sound program through you, and we'll put a link on mm -hmm. our website as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, pranayama, and oh. chanting, and soft circle, and breathing, and oh. all of those things are yeah. are good as well. Yeah. And uh, FaceTime oh. with your family right now is also a, a good right. One that, Not necessarily uh, with with the Apple computer, but real FaceTime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Porges. It's it's a delight to have you on the show, and really appreciate your body of work and. Um, really appreciate your wisdom in well, particular right now. Well, yeah. thank you very much for inviting me, and I hope this has been helpful to you and, and your constituency. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.